Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we. This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back. This is the episode for September 21st through 27th, 3rd Nephi 12 through 16, I Am the Law and the Light. If this episode sounds a little bit different, it's because I am actually recording from my playroom today instead of our closet. Um, my poor husband is still asleep. It's Saturday morning, and I just couldn't wake him up by recording this in my closet because he's been so good this week with... I've been like an anxiety stress mess and he's just been very patient. So he deserves to sleep in and deserves not to be disturbed. So I'm in the playroom and just to, you know, paint a mental picture for you. I'm sitting on a weightlifting bench, but my laptop is on a Lightning McQueen chair and my microphone is currently sitting on a Minecraft character head. So, you know, just let's keep it real. Like this is my life right now. Okay, now let's get into the actual reason we are here, which is the Come Follow Me lesson. This week we are talking about how Christ came, you know, to the Nephites, obviously, and how he fulfilled the law of Moses. And he kind of gives the Sermon on the Mount, but he is at the temple at Bountiful. So it's the Sermon at the Temple. And there's a lot of similarities. We're going to talk about that. But let's start with the introduction and come follow me. It says, like Jesus's disciples who gathered at the mountain Galilee, the people who gathered at the temple at Bountiful had lived under the law of Moses. They had followed it because it pointed their souls to Christ. And now Christ stood before them declaring a higher law. But even those of us who have never lived the law of Moses can recognize that the standard Jesus set for his disciples is a much higher law. I would that ye should be perfect, he declared in 3 Nephi 12:48. If this makes you feel inadequate, remember that Jesus also said, Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This higher law is an invitation, another way of saying, Come unto me and be ye saved. Like the law of Moses, this law points us to Christ, the only one who can save and perfect us. Behold, he said, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end, and ye shall live. And a couple episodes we had talked about ponderizing, you know, finding a scripture that week that really spoke to you and kind of, you know, thinking about it over and over again. And um, I don't know that I went that deeply into it this week, but I did pick that particular scripture, that 3 Nephi 15.9, where it says, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end, and ye shall live. And I liked that scripture so much because it encapsulates what Christ is. You know, he is a God of justice and this is how we live our lives and are righteous. And, you know, we need to follow the commandments and things like that. But then he is also a God of love and a God of mercy. And so we have the law and then we have the light. And that's who our Savior and our Heavenly Father are, Um, you know, justice and mercy hand in hand. And so I really like that this week. 
And before we jump into the actual lesson and the questions from Come Follow Me, I want to talk about something that kind of stood out to me. And of course, you know, we're kind of getting a repeat version of some of the teachings that Christ gave when he was, you know, in Israel with his other disciples, which makes sense because if what he is teaching is the law and the light, everybody needs to know it. So of course he would say the same things. Now, one of the first places that this really jumped out at me, and, you know, normally I would think it would be the Sermon on the Mount type stuff, the Beatitudes. But this week, for some reason, it was the Lord's Prayer that really stood out to me that I was like, oh, that's really similar. And um, I really got interested in comparing and contrasting the differences. After doing a little bit of research, there are four versions of the Lord's Prayer in Scripture. Well, hmm. I have to say the fourth version is not necessarily in canonical scripture. It's not part of our scriptural canon. Um, it's actually apocryphal. It's from the Didache. And the Didache is, if you go on Wikipedia, you can look it up, and it's not spelled like how it sounds. It's actually spelled like D-I-D-A-C-H-E. So it's it's spelled like did-ache, but it's pronounced Didache. The Didache was kind of like the church handbook for the early saints, and it actually kind of predates a lot of the scriptures that we have in Matthew and Luke and things like that. So the fact that the Lord's Prayer would also be written down in the Didache as kind of this is how you pray, I think is pretty cool. So within those four versions, we have Luke 11, 2, 4, Matthew 6, 9, 13, 3 Nephi 13, 9 to 11, and then Didache 8, Okay. Here's what they all have in common. All four of them say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, the next part is different though, which I find interesting. So in the Luke version, Matthew version, and the Didache version, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is on heaven. Now in the third Nephi version, thy kingdom come is gone. It's disappeared. And why is that? Well, because the kingdom did come. Christ is on the earth. Um, he's performed the atonement. So that kingdom is not coming. That kingdom is here, right? <laughs> so that would be why it's missing. And I think that's really kind of a cool omis- omission there. Then the next part is give us day by day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread is what Luke and Matthew say. And Didache says, give us today our daily needful bread. Third Nephi, there's no mention of bread. None at all. And if you actually go in and you look at the translation for bread in that case, it's used a whole lot less. That particular word is used a whole lot less to describe like bread like you eat and more like something that sustains you. And so give us something that sustains us is kind of what the prayer was saying. And Christ is here. His gospel is what sustains us. So that could be why that got left out in 3 Nephi. And then The next section, and forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors, is the same across all four. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil is the same in all. Well, it's the same in like Luke, Matthew, Nephi. Didache has it. Bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, you know, there's a little bit different there. And then in the last part, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that's left out of Luke for some reason, but Matthew, Nephi, and the Didache all have it. So um, just interesting, the differences, right? And when you go in and you start looking at the differences between the sermons that he gave, which first of all, you know, we talk about the Sermon on the Mount a whole lot, but there is actually also the Sermon on the Plain, 
We talked about it a little bit more in Luke. It's around Luke 11, um, where he was on a plane, and he gave kind of a brief version of what would later be called the Beatitudes in Matthew. And so he had those two versions there, and then he's giving a third version to the Nephites in the New World, right? So there are a few changes for each audience. Um, In particular, Luke is probably the briefest account. And my guess would be that's because he was on the plains, anyone could walk by, he had a much broader audience. Whereas in Matthew, he's on the mount, and the people who had come to him were disciples of him, they were followers of him. And so he was able to go much more in depth with like, hey, this is what you need to do. And then in 3 Nephi, the account we have goes even deeper. And I actually want to read it because there are two verses that are added that I think are so important to our understanding of Christ's sermon. So let's go ahead and read that real quick. So now remember, we're talking about the Beatitudes. This is like, blessed are those, like that whole thing. Okay, so listen to the two different blessed are those that are in 3 Nephi 12 verses 1 and 2. Okay, so this is 3 Nephi 12, 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words unto Nephi and to those who had been called, now the number of them who had been called and received power and authority to baptize was 12. And behold, he stretched forth his hand unto the multitude and cried unto them, saying, Blessed are ye, if ye shall give heed unto the words of these 12 whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. And unto them I have given power that they may baptize you with water. And after that you are baptized with water, behold, I will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Therefore, blessed are ye, if ye shall believe in me and be baptized. After that ye have seen me and know that I am. Okay, so we have two new blesseds are in there. Blessed are ye if you listen to the, your church leaders, you know, to those who are leading and guiding the church. And then blessed are ye if you are baptized. When we start looking at the Beatitudes or the sermon as kind of a roadmap to coming back to our Father in Heaven, I think when Christ gave this as the roadmap, especially back in ancient Judea, I think he was giving it to believers who had already been baptized, who were already on the path following him and listening. Whereas this group, you know, remember the Nephites had become so wicked that this is like the best of like the wicked. So they were still really struggling. So we had to start at the beginning. Blessed are you basically if you have faith, then blessed are you if you get baptized. What does that sound like? It sounds like our fourth article of faith, right? Okay, we're going into verse two. And again, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words, because they shall testify that ye have seen me, and ye know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words, and come down into the depths of humility, and be baptized. For they shall be visited with fire, and with the Holy Ghost, and shall receive a remission of their sins. So, blessed are you if you have faith to believe, and blessed are you if you get baptized, because then you'll get the Holy Ghost, is what we see there in those two. So, that starts us out for the rest of the Beatitudes that we're going to see here in 3 Nephi 12. Because again, in 3, we go into blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And from there, we have kind of just a step-by-step guide of how we come into Christ. Now, for a really good overview of this sermon, I would definitely recommend that you go check out bookofmormoncentral.org. They've got a know why on this, which is like where you know something and then why it's important. And it's really good because they have... 
uh, SoundCloud. They have like a podcast you can listen to about it, a printable PDF of like an infographic they've created, a YouTube link to the video that describes it, and then the video download that you can also use for your family. So bookofmormoncentral.org, definitely go check out their know why for why did Jesus deliver a version of the Sermon on the Mount at the Temple Bountiful? Some of the things that I found really helpful this week, because I was like, you know, we've got the three different versions of the sermon. What are some of the differences and why do they matter? And this article explains some of that. Book of Mormon Central says, for instance, in this setting, Nephi, third Nephi, Jesus declared that the law had been fulfilled instead of pointing towards a future fulfillment. And this would be third Nephi 12, 18 versus Matthew 5, 18. He also taught that as a glorified being, he was perfect like the Father. This is 3 Nephi 12, 48 versus Matthew 5, 48. And thus admitted thy kingdom come in the Lord's prayer. We talked about that. And he also specifically spoke of the Nephite sending instead of the Jewish farthing. So he is making his sermon specific to his audience, which is what a good teacher does. Something else I noticed that was kind of interesting is if you go in and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, he says over and over again, it has been said that, you know, da, 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 like, for example, in Matthew 5, 28, where he says, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Okay. So then we go into Nephi. And instead of saying like thou have heard or it has been said, he says, behold, it has been written of them in old times. Behold, it was written. And over and over again, he references the written word versus when he was in Matthew, he references like the spoken word. And to me, that's just an interesting note on the cultural differences between these two cultures where you had kind of a sage on the stage. That's what we call when a teacher stands in front of the classroom and just teaches straight up from the front of the classroom. And so that's kind of what they had in ancient Israel, where they had these Pharisees and the different people who knew the scriptures really well. And they would go up and they would sit there and speak to the people. And that's how the people would get their scriptures was from listening to the Pharisees and all that stuff, right? Whereas you have in the Nephite culture, They had the written word. They had those brass plates. And it sounds like to me, like they'd read it, like written down had read it and that they referenced those, those writings like repeatedly. The whole reason we have the Book of Mormon is because these records were so important to these people. And so the focus on the written word versus the spoken word and what that says about them culturally is interesting to me. It feels like it was much more personalized, I think, in the Nephite culture that they had their own interaction with the written word of the scriptures versus like somebody else was saying it to them in ancient Israel. I don't know if that's true or not. That is gospel according to Lexi. I haven't actually seen any research on that. That was just some of the things that I was pondering this week. Um, I just thought that that was an interesting difference. Okay, let's go back to come follow me. <laughs> okay, the Savior's teachings show me how to be a true disciple. I talked a little bit about how the Beatitudes become kind of a guide to teach us to be more like Christ and a guide to lead us back to our Heavenly Father. And Come Follow Me has you pick a group of verses and summarize what these verses teach us in one sentence that begins with true disciples, and then you look for other examples of that throughout the readings. And to me, I just didn't feel like I needed to do that. What I wanted to do is go in and actually look at the Beatitudes and see how they led me to Christ. Okay, and how they kind of like were stair steps just to learn about them. So this is what I found. We start in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
when I was little and just growing up and even like I would say probably like a year or so ago, I always thought that meant that people who are poor in spirit, like sad, blessed are the sad people for theirs is the kingdom of heaven after this life, they get this. But no, if you are poor in spirit, like if you're poor in money, you don't have enough money to buy something. But all of a sudden you're poor in spirit. You don't have enough spirit to get what you need to get to heaven, I guess, in this case. So when we come into Christ, when we find his gospel and we follow it, when we come unto him, then all of a sudden the doors of the kingdom of heaven open to us. So blessed are those who don't really have the gospel in their lives because when they come unto him, then all of a sudden they do have the gospel in their life. After that, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, so when we come to him and we do have the gospel in our life, We still need to be teachable and realize that we don't know everything and we can still learn things and have experiences that teach us how to become closer to him. And once we do that, then, you know, the whole world is ours, right? Six, blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. So after we have done the learning and studying and have been meek, then we continue in our search for righteousness. We continue in our search for knowledge about Christ and who he is and coming closer to him. And as we do that, we have the Holy Ghost filling up our lives. Then blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. As we become closer to Christ, we become more like him. And as we shape our lives to become more like him, we start to have some of his attributes. When we are merciful, we shall obtain mercy from him as well. Eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Mother Teresa has a quote where she says, Seeking the face of God in everything, everyone, all the time, and his hand in every happening, this is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world. Okay, taking that back to blessed are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God. So when we have God in our heart, when we contemplate him in the middle of this crazy busy world that we're in, all of a sudden we see his hand everywhere. We see his guidance everywhere and we see him in the people that we interact with. And that changes the way that we interact with them. And so when we are pure in heart, when we try so hard to follow him, all of a sudden we see God, which is pretty cool. Nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Well, of course, Christ was the perfect example of a peacemaker. He was the perfect example of peace on earth. When we follow him, we become peacemakers. And these aren't necessarily, I mean, yes, peacemakers are definitely people who like, hey, you're fighting and you're fighting. Let's make peace, right? But I also strongly believe that being a peacemaker means that you bring peace into situations where there's no peace. So you bring peace into stressful situations. You bring peace into tense situations or busy situations or difficult situations that you are able to be in that storm and still find peace and help others to find peace as well. And what other method would be perfect for this than this crazy, like conflicting world that we live in by bringing the gospel of Christ to others? Then you become become the children of God. We are literally missionaries to the whole world when we spread the gospel of peace. Also, something I was thinking about recently is, you know, a lot of times we talk about missionary work, and I think we think of missionary work as something that happens outside of the church, like we want to convert non-members. But I've learned more and more recently that missionary work also takes place within the church. You know, just because someone's been baptized years ago and they have been coming every Sunday doesn't necessarily mean that they don't need to be 
like ministered to that we, there's things that we can't do to strengthen their testimony because we can, we can strengthen their testimony and we can do missionary work to those who are still like showing up in our ward every Sunday, still helping convert them to the gospel of Christ because all of us have, you know, weak points in our testimony. So missionary work, I think applies to everybody everywhere around the world, non-member, member alike, we still need to be strengthening each other and bringing each other to Christ and to that peace that he promises. All right, 10. Blessed are all they who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we become closer and closer to him, you know, Satan's going to work harder and harder. And it can be persecution outside, like from family members or friends or just the world in general. But I also think we can get persecution from you know, temptations and trials that Satan puts into our lives. And when we overcome those things, we become closer to Christ. And we, again, that kingdom of heaven is there. This is the same kingdom of heaven that was also mentioned in verse three, which I find interesting. 11, and blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For ye shall have great joy and be exceedingly glad, for great shall be your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. So when we are persecuted, and again, I guess just in my personal case, I mean, yeah, I experience that every now and again. But for the most part, when they describe this, men shall revile you and persecute and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Sometimes I think of the the persecution we do for our against ourselves. You know, like my testimony is not good enough. I'm not strong enough here. I'm not good enough for that calling. Sometimes the persecution I think comes from within. And if we can get over that, then there's great joy and being exceedingly glad. How do we get over that? I don't know. That's something I'm working on myself on like how to stop persecuting myself for my flaws. And but I could see that being a great reward. Like once you get over that, you will have great joy and be exceedingly glad. I don't know if that makes sense or not. <laughs> 13. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth. For if the salt shall lose its savor, wherewith shall the earth be salted? The salt shall be thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Okay, so I had an experience that really kind of drove this home. So I love Chick-fil-A. And, you know, here in the South, we call Chick-fil-A the Lord's chicken, um, just because it's so, you know, so good, but also because Chick-fil-A is a very spiritual company. And so I love the Lord's chicken and their Chick-fil-A sandwiches are awesome. Their fries, like the waffle fries, they're okay on a good day. Like I'm not a potato person. Like this is something that it's always been my thing. Like, I just don't like potatoes. I just don't like potatoes. Baked fried, whatever, like French fries. I'm okay with, I can eat potato chips and French fries and they don't really bother me that much, but it's got to be a good French fry for me to eat it. I will tolerate Chick-fil-A's fries. Okay. So one day we went through Chick-fil-A and I got my chicken sandwich, you know, it was amazing. And then we got some Chick-fil-A fries and I go to go eat my Chick-fil-A fries and they were not salted. Someone had not put the salt on them. So it was basically like just potato. And I was like spitting it out. I'm like, Oh, it's so yuck. And that was the experience that taught me. I'm like, salt is really important. Salt is really important, um, especially when you are making a dish, right? That you still have that content there, but salt is what really brings it all together. So when we are to be the salt of the earth, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ is in the earth, but we need to be there to help people put it together. We need to be there to reach out and love and to really make it happen here on earth. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's kind of what I thought. Also, I love this meme. I don't know if you guys have seen the meme or not of Christ. And the meme says, when you tell people to be the salt of the earth and they just are salty instead. So don't be salty. That means like mean and kind of just snappy. Don't be salty. Be the salt of the earth instead. I love that. And then they go into the whole thing about, I give unto you to be the light of this people. A city that is on a hill cannot be hid. Behold, do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, nay, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Therefore, let your light so shine before this people that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. And that 16, therefore, let your light so shine is the first scripture I ever memorized. And it's something I've repeated to myself multiple times throughout my life. And I found myself recently in a situation where I feel like everywhere I turn in my life, like. I'm in situations where I don't want to do this thing, but my heavenly father is telling me to do this thing. Like an example is my job. Like if it were up to me, how I would spend my time is literally sitting on my couch, binge watching Netflix. Like I loved quarantine because of that. It was awesome. But that is not letting my light shine. You know, I need to be with those kids every day, letting my light shine in their lives and in the lives of their families. Another example is this podcast. Sometimes I'm like, Heavenly Father, I just don't want to do it. Like, it's just so much pressure and so much hard work. I just want to sit on my couch and watch Netflix. Like, I just want to do that. And he's like, no, I really need you to do this podcast. And I'm like, I literally have been struggling so hard with my job in the podcast this week. I'm like, I don't want to do it. And he's like, you need to do it. And again, I think it's another case of letting your light shine. You know, he gave me the talent, I think, to teach and to reach people. And um, it would be a shame not to use that. But also the blessing that I get when I do the podcast where I delve so much more deeply into the scriptures than I would otherwise. Um, You know, I've really been struggling about whether or not I'm going to do next year's Come Follow Me with you guys in the podcast um, because the Doctrine and Covenants are not my favorite book of scripture by far. Like I do do not like the Doctrine and Covenants. And so I was like, can I really come out with an episode every week? I don't know. It might even be bi-weekly. I don't even know, guys, to be honest with you right now where it's going to be. But I feel like I need to do it, not only for you guys, but because I feel like I will learn so much more. My testimony will be so much stronger if I do the podcast with the Doctrine and Covenants. So just a heads up, next year may be a little bit of a struggle for me. Um, for those of you who've been listening for a long time, I appreciate you sticking with me through all of my craziness, but next year may be especially crazy. And just, you know, hang tight. But it's been a conversation that my Heavenly Father and I have been having pretty regularly. I don't want to do this thing. Oh, but you need to do this thing. And I'm like, <laughs> make my will yours. Like, I, I give you my will, but I really don't want to give you my will. And, you know, like that's literally a conversation we had this morning. But anyways, um, I've actually been seeing a quote that reminds me of this a lot when we are talking about, you know, our light and hiding it under a bushel. Um, it's been ascribed to Chadwick Boseman, you know, the Black Panther guy who died um, just recently. So sad. But the quote is, when I stand before God at the end of my life, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of talent left and could say, I used everything you gave me. 
Now, I know that talent is something that's replenished in our lives. And as we serve our Heavenly Father, we are given more and more to continue serving Him. But the idea of if I could use that talent up in the service of my God, would I? And that's when I'm like, okay, I really do need to use my talent for good. Now, I wasn't sent to this earth to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. I wish I was because that's my happiest little state, but that's not why I was sent here. And so like Chadwick Boseman said, which by the way, this is my librarian side coming out. Like picture me pushing up my glasses on my nose. <laughs> my librarian side. Um, the correct source for that is Irma Bombeck. He did quote it, but he quoted Irma Bombeck. So cite your sources. Um, that quote, I would use up all my talents. So when I stand before God, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of talent left and could say, I used everything you gave me. That's something that stuck with me. I'm like, I would like to be able to stand before my Savior and my Heavenly Father and say, I used all the experiences you gave me to serve you. And sometimes my natural man tends to like (laughs) rebel against that and not want to do it. And I get a little whiny, but I have learned that that candle needs to be lit and not hit underneath the bushel. So I guess what Come Follow Me asked us to do was, you know, true disciples of Jesus Christ, dot, 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 and find your thing. I guess the candle was my thing this week that I really needed to look for ways to not hide my light, you know? I don't know. Okay, guys, I feel like this episode is kind of all over the place. I apologize because... Just this is my mind this week. I'm kind of just all over the place. So the next part of the Come Follow Me experience of this week that I had was 3 Nephi 1248, which is, Therefore, I would that you should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Now, interesting how that compares to Matthew 548, which says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So Jesus Christ, who led a perfect life, didn't consider himself perfect until after the atonement when he came back to the Nephites. That's when he included himself in that scripture. So what does that tell us? That perfection is pending. Perfection is not like in this life. I think that's really important for us to know because sometimes we beat ourselves up for not being perfect. Um, I gave a talk on this in 2018 and I actually went back and reread this talk and I feel like I need to share it with you guys because um, it was really good for me to even go back and read and be like, okay, like that makes sense. Like I need to, it was just good for me to hear for myself. So here's, here's the talk from 2018. Perfection is a tricky topic. We are told in Matthew, be therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven is perfect. While the scriptures are referring to perfection accomplished in a far off point in time, even after this life, we are bombarded with similar yet wrong and incomplete messages in this life. Satan, who loves to create counterfeits of the truth, attempts to convince us that we need to look a certain way or have certain things to be perfect according to the standards of the world, to be good enough, to be loved. But we all know that these things don't bring happiness. And they don't qualify us for the perfection our Heavenly Father is talking about in Matthew. So we should leave our concerns about perfection at the door when we walk into church, right? Well, that's a little easier said than done. In a 2003 October conference, Anthony D. Perkins of the First Quorum of the Seventy gave some examples of how our drive to be perfect impacts our spiritual well-being. See if any of these sound familiar to you. Number one, a faithful young woman feels unable to meet the expectations of others. At home, 
school, and with her friends, she is rarely praised and often criticized. The things she sees on social media tell her she is not beautiful enough or smart enough. Every day, this righteous young woman questions whether she is an individual worthy of our Heavenly Father's love, the Savior's atoning sacrifice, or the Spirit's constant guidance. 2. An outstanding missionary feels incapable of meeting the expectations of God. In his mind, this worthy elder imagines a stern Heavenly Father, bound to irrevocable justice, a Savior capable of cleansing others' transgressions but not this elder's own, and a Holy Ghost unwilling to accompany an imperfect person. Three, a middle-aged woman is a devoted mother, a loving friend, a faithful church servant, and a frequent temple patron. But in her heart, this sister cannot forgive herself of sins committed years ago, that she is repented of and fully resolved with priesthood leaders. She doubts that her life will ever be acceptable to the Lord and has lost hope of eternal life in our Heavenly Father's presence. Have you ever felt like any of these examples, like not good enough, too weak? I know I have. And if you have, you're in pretty good company. There are many examples of those who felt like they didn't measure up in the scriptures. Moses was terrified of public speaking, so much so that the Lord had Aaron speak for Moses. Isaiah proclaimed himself to have a potty mouth. Yes, he had um, sometimes some bad words. Moroni was afraid that his readers would laugh and make fun of the way he wrote. Moses, Isaiah, Moroni, all felt inadequate, insecure, unworthy, and imperfect. So if you're feeling inadequate, insecure, or imperfect like our friends Moses, Isaiah, and Moroni, listen up. Elder Perkins continues, If you have any thoughts and feelings about being imperfect, I invite you to become as a little child and feel again the great and wonderful love made manifest by the Father and the Son in the coming of the Redeemer into the world. Childlike faith in the perfect love of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ will divide asunder Satan's snares of inadequacy, imperfection, and guilt. But this is so much easier said than done, right? Even President Nelson said this in his amazing conference talk titled Perfection Pending. He says, if I were to ask which of the Lord's commandments is the most difficult to keep, many of us might cite Matthew 5:48, be ye therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven which is in heaven is perfect. When comparing one's personal performance with the supreme standard of the Lord's expectation, the reality of imperfection can at times be depressing. My heart goes out to the conscientious saints who, because of their shortcomings, allow feelings of depression to rob them of happiness in life. We all need to remember, men are that they might have joy, not guilt trips. Are we allowing feelings of inadequacy and depression to rob us of happiness? I know I do. So let's rewind a bit and take a closer look at our Father in Heaven's definition of perfection. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, I am a word nerd. I love words. I love learning their history, their origins. And in this case, President Nelson describes the etymology for the word perfect in Matthew 5.8. In Matthew 5.8, the term perfect was translated from the Greek word teleos, which means complete. Teleos is an adjective derived from the noun telos, which means end. The infinitive form of the verse is, verb is teleano, which means to reach a distant end, to be fully developed, to refine, or to finish. 
Please note that the word does not imply freedom from error. It implies achieving a distant objective. In fact, when writers of the Greek New Testament wish to describe perfection of behavior, precision of excellence of human effort, they did not employ a form of the word teleos. Instead, they chose different words. So with that knowledge, Matthew 5.8 takes on a very different light. Be therefore complete, even as your Father in heaven is complete. Be therefore developed, even as your Father in heaven is fully developed. Be therefore refined, even as your Father which is in heaven is refined. Be therefore finished, even as your Father which is in heaven is finished. This changes everything. All of a sudden, the reach, the pressure to reach perfection in this life is removed, and we can look beyond this mortal sphere to being completed, developed, refined, and finished in the eternities. Another way to think about it, we did not come to this earth to be perfect. Ask any primary child why we came to earth, and they'll tell you to get a body, to use our agency. In fact, we knew we wouldn't be perfect. We knew mistakes would be made, which is why we chose a Savior to provide an infinite atonement to cover all of our imperfections. To come to earth and be perfect was not the Savior's plan. In fact, it was the other plan, right? The one that we didn't choose? We knew we needed to have the freedom to make mistakes because when you make mistakes, you learn. Now, pause. This is Lexi. I wrote this in 2018, so this is me talking from my job as a middle school librarian back when I was at middle school. So um, that's this next section. So unpause. I'm a school librarian at a middle school, and one of my extracurricular activities is to sponsor the art club. Each Friday, I meet with about 24 middle school students, and we create art. I have a saying that I teach them at the beginning of the year, and I have to repeat it multiple times each Friday. The phrase is, beautiful oops. I started this about a year ago when I got tired of kids saying, I messed up this paper. I need another one. I want a do-over. They were expecting to be perfect on their first try, and I wanted them to learn that art is more than that. Art is persistence and patience and willing to go through the ugly stuff that makes you uncomfortable because it is hard, but it's all going to come together in the end. And learning to go through that process is an important part of becoming an artist. So I found a children's book called Beautiful Oops. And in the book, an artist makes a mistake and then makes that mistake into art. An example is a tear in the page that becomes the mouth of an alligator. A torn piece of paper is just the beginning. Spills, folded paper, drips of paint, smudges and smears, they can all make magic appear. Folded over paper can become a penguin's head. A torn piece of newsprint can be turned into a smiling dog with just a little application of paint. A hot chocolate stain can become a swamp for a frog. I read this book to them at the beginning of the year. Now when the kids begin their artwork, I remind them that beautiful oops is in effect. This means that they get one copy of their paper, canvas, or whatever medium we're working on that day. They get one shot. And if they make a mistake, they find a way to make that mistake beautiful. Similarly, we have this one life. We can't go back to our Heavenly Father and say, I messed this one up. I need another one. I want to do over. It doesn't work that way. Life is persistence and patience and willing to go through the ugly stuff that makes you uncomfortable 
Things like mistakes, hard times, consequences of our actions, illness, mental illness, tragedy, all the stuff that's imperfect and hard, but it's all going to come together in the end. And learning to go through this process is an important part of becoming what our Father in Heaven wants us to be. Beautiful oops is in effect. We have to take our mistakes, our imperfections, and turn them into beautiful oops. And if we work closely with our Father in Heaven, He can help this happen. For after all, as we read in Isaiah 61.3, Our Heavenly Father trades us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, we read, He hath made everything beautiful in His time. Everything beautiful, even oopses. So why? Why is there imperfection in this life? Why is there hurt and anger and sickness and loneliness and depression and death and any awful experience you can think of? Why does it have to be so hard? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has said, We are the church of Jesus Christ. This is the truth, and he is our great eternal head. How could we believe it would be easy for us when it was never, ever easy for him? It seems to me that we have to spend a few moments in our own Gethsemanes. We have to take at least a step or two towards the summit of Calvary, which means that Jesus Christ is the perfect counselor, leader, friend, and source of strength and solace we could ever ask for as we encounter our own Gethsemanes and Calvaries. I personally believe that at the root of all the trials and imperfections in our lives, there are lessons to be learned. We go through these things to gain knowledge and progression that we could never accumulate through any other means. Think about the hardest thing you've ever been through, like the biggest, deepest trial you have ever experienced. Think. Now, what did you learn from that experience? Is there any way that you could have learned it any other way? In education, we reference different learning methods for different learners. The Lord is the perfect teacher, and He has created the ultimate curriculum for you. He knows there are some lessons we can learn through the advice and experience of others, but then there are others that we have to experience for ourselves. If you've ever had a child near a hot stove, I'm sure you've had the talk, don't touch that stove, it's very hot. And some children listen and don't touch the stove. Well, not me. (laughs) Apparently, that's just not my learning style. I just had to touch that hot stove. And yes, I can tell you from personal experience, it was very hot. Did I ever touch the hot stove again? No. And did I listen when my mother told me something was hot? Yes. That is a very small version of how much some of our trials can teach us. When it comes to our behavior, for those of us who have touched the proverbial hot stove, we can beat ourselves up pretty thoroughly for our mistakes. Elder Holland says, What I now say in no way denies or diminishes any commandment God has ever given. I believe in His perfection, and I know we are His spiritual sons and daughters with divine potential to become as per- as He is perfect. I also know that as children of God, we should not demean or vilify ourselves, as if beating up on ourselves is somehow going to make us the person God wants us to become. No, with a willingness to repent and a desire for increased righteousness always in our hearts, I would hope that we could pursue personal improvement in a way that doesn't include getting ulcers or anorexia, feeling depressed, or demolishing our own self-esteem. That is not what the Lord wants for primary children or anyone else 
who honestly sings, I'm trying to be like Jesus. So how do we improve? We apply the atonement of Jesus Christ. President Nelson has said, We need not be dismayed if our earnest efforts towards perfection now seem so arduous and endless. Perfection is pending. It can come in full only after the resurrection and only through the Lord. It awaits all who love him and keep his commandments. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, and I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. We do have help in our quest towards perfection. A great example of this is Moroni. I love the story in Ether chapter 12. Moroni, like Moroni, is having a come apart because he's afraid that the Gentiles are going to mock the way he writes. We read in Ether 12 verses 23-25, And I said unto him, Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things because of our weakness in writing. For Lord, thou hast made us mighty in word by faith, but thou hast not made us mighty in writing. For thou hast made all this people that they could speak much because of the Holy Ghost which thou hast given them. And thou hast made us that we could write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands. Thou hast also made our words powerful and great, even that we cannot write them. Wherefore, when we write, we behold our weakness and stumble because of the placing of our words. And I fear lest the Gentiles shall mock at our words. So I think this is the Book of Mormon version of they're all going to laugh at me. Bless his heart. But in return, from the Lord, we get one of the most beautiful and hopeful pieces of scripture and one of my personal favorites. Ether twelve twenty seven, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. And he does. Moroni goes on to write some of the most amazing passages in all of the Book of Mormon because he was strengthened and refined through the grace of Jesus Christ. In True to the Faith, we can read more about the grace of Jesus Christ. It says, In addition to needing grace for your ultimate salvation, you need this enabling power every day of your life. As you draw near to your Heavenly Father in diligence, humility, weakness, He will uplift and strengthen you through His grace. Reliance upon His grace enables you to progress and grow in righteousness. Okay, so let's make this perfection thing a little easier. Perhaps we could just adjust our goals from being perfect to being worthy while here on earth. Marvin J. Ashton said, When we dwell on our own weaknesses, it is easy to dwell on the feelings that we are unworthy. Somehow we need to bridge the gap between continually striving to improve, yet not feeling defeated when our actions aren't perfect all the time. We need to remove unworthy from our vocabulary and replace it with hope and work and worthy. This we can do if we turn to quieter, deeper, surer guidelines, the words of our prophets and leaders past and present. Worthy is obtainable in this life, being worthy for a temple recommend, worthy for the companionship of the Holy Ghost, worthy to take the sacrament. All these things are possible and will put you on the path to be refined, completed, and perfected, even as our Father in Heaven is. As we apply grace to our own lives, let's give grace to others as well. I believe it is important to extend grace to others around you. There has only been one flawless person who walked this earth, and we are not him. So please don't expect perfection from our leaders or those around us. 
Don't expect perfection from this podium or from the people we talk to in the hallway. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. We come here to get better, to be better, not because we are better. We can extend to grace as those we look around us make mistakes because, after all, they are in the middle of their own curriculum, too. We can overlook slights, help when needed, avoid being offended, and be just as patient as possible. On our quest to perfection, it will be very helpful if we do not compare our own personal path with the path of others. I know I've looked around in church meetings and compared myself to others. I'm not as smart as she is. I'm not as dependable as that person is. I wish I had the perfect family situation like that family. If I had all these things, I could be perfect, right? However, comparing yourself to others is not the answer. Comparison is the thief of joy. Marvin J. Ashton said, Perhaps we all live under some misconceptions when we look at each other on Sundays as we attend our meetings. Everyone is neatly dressed and greets each other with a smile. It's natural to assume that everyone else has their life under control and doesn't have to deal with the dark little weaknesses and imperfections that we have. There is a natural, probably a mortal, tendency to compare ourselves with others. Unfortunately, when we make these comparisons, we tend to compare our weakest attributes with someone else's strongest. For example, a woman who feels unschooled in the gospel may take particular note of a woman in her ward who teaches the gospel doctrine class and seems to have every scripture at her fingertips. Obviously, these kinds of comparisons are destructive and only reinforce the fear that somehow we don't measure up, and therefore we must not be as worthy as the next person. This comes back around to what I mentioned in the beginning of my talk. These comparisons fuel the lie Satan tells us via the world. We have to look a certain way, think a certain way, act a certain way, or have certain things to be good enough, to be loved, to be perfect. God answers back and says, you are good enough. You are loved. You will be perfect because you are mine. One of my favorite children's books is called You Are Special by Max Lucado. In this book, there's a bunch of little wooden puppets who live together in a town. They have a tradition that they give gold star stickers to each other when they look especially beautiful, well-dressed, or do something impressive. For those who look disheveled or who do things that are foolish, they give gray dot stickers. One of these little people is named Punchinello. His paint is a little scratched, and he always seems to be saying things that aren't very smart. No one gives him gold stars, but he gets a lot of gray dots. He's pretty miserable in this existence, until one day he meets a girl named Lucia. She doesn't have any stickers, gold or gray. They simply don't stick on her. She tells him it's because she spends time with the creator, Eli, who lives on the hill. Punchinello goes to visit Eli. Eli, his creator, calls him by name and with love. Eli tells him how special Punchinello is to him and how much he means to him. He tells him the gray dots don't matter because all that matters is what Eli, his creator, thinks of him. And as he starts to believe him, the gray dots fall off. As we spend time with our creator, we find out how much he truly loves us. We become closer to the truest version of ourselves. The closer we come to our Heavenly Father in prayer, in scripture study, in church and temple attendance, and those quiet moments where we feel the Spirit, the more we realize our divine potential and gain the vision of what perfection looks like. As we do, those concerns of the world, those gray dots others that or ourselves have given us, slowly but surely slide off. Because all that matters is what our Creator thinks of us and the plans He has for us. I'd like to finish by quoting Elder Holland once more. 
I testify of that grand destiny of perfection made available to all of us by the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself continued from grace to grace until in his immortality he received a perfect fullness of celestial glory. I testify that in this and every hour he is, with nail-scarred hands, extending to us that same grace, holding on to us and encouraging us, refusing to let us go until we are safely home in the embrace of our heavenly parents. For such a perfect moment, I continue to strive, however clumsily. For such a perfect gift, I continue to give thanks, however inadequately. And I do so in the very name of perfection itself, our Savior Jesus Christ. We might make mistakes, but our Heavenly Father doesn't. If we trust in Him and in the power of the atonement and do our best to be worthy of it, He will complete, develop, refine, finish, and yes, even one day perfect us, even as He is. That is the talk that I gave, and listening back to it, or reading it again, I guess this week, was really important to me. Every time I read that scripture that says, be therefore perfect, even in 35, as I and your father in heaven are perfect, I tend to feel a little inadequate. So I hope that that talk helped you um, as it helped me this week. And with that, I'm going to end this week's episode. Thank you for sticking through it and for listening along. Um, my crazy mess <laughs> kind of that's going on in my mind right now. It's kind of a hot mess. But thank you so much for sticking with me. I love you guys. Have a great week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening. 